From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest, Daniel Day, can we know from all kinds of things, probably every iteration of Avatar, the last airbender you could think of, he's currently starring in that show on Netflix now. But I think about characters he's played going from lost to the hot zone. And so often he's played characters who are trying to find ways to hide their hurt. What does that look? <laughs> anyway, he's sitting across from me. <laughs> What's what's wrong, Dan? No, it's just, I, I'm immediately reminded of how incredibly smart and thoughtful you are, Elvis. Like I've listened to this show for decades, and you always get to the crux of things with your guests that that often they don't even realize. And you know, I knew that that was a dynamic that was kind of prevalent in my work, but I didn't know that others knew that. I should have known that you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's it's interesting because it's never apparent. And and the great thing about Lost is watching the time you took to play that out and the way he would turn away after an outburst rather than show that side of himself. And I always get emotional talking about that because to see that kind of character played out by a person of color with that level of nuance on a network television show was it's still an astonishing thing for me to talk about. Wow, that's high praise coming from you. Thank you very much. I will say that, you know, I think there is an interest of mine in playing those kinds of characters because it parallels a lot of my own journey personally, you know, like as a person of color growing up here and feeling like I had to present in a particular way in order to be accepted. And when I was hurt and when I was angry, to not be able to show that because I needed to present as if nothing bothered me and that I was going to be okay, no matter what the aggressions or microaggressions were going to be, the need for acceptance was so high that I was willing to overlook that, hide it, or have it manifest in some other way. That's interesting, though, because I wonder when you got the script, for example, going to the hot zone, and there are a couple of scenes where he sort of, sort of talks about being sort of the poster child for tolerance in some ways, the way he delivers those kinds of lines, like, how many times do I get to get asked about this and how many different ways can I inflect the answer? Because the answer is kind of boilerplate. When you get these characters, what do you say to the writers about that? I'm so glad you brought that up because that particular monologue was one that I spoke to the writers about at length. Because very rarely in that show does my character get to reveal what his thoughts are. And that was one of the only places where he could. He was very mission-driven, that character. And I think he was a character that succeeded despite his ethnicity and despite his background. And so, you know, it's not a comfortable dynamic for him to reveal what he's thinking. It's never served him in the past. So the fact that he feels comfortable enough to do so with his partner at that point is a real uh, inflection point for the character. You played in a lot of people in small roles or big roles who have been sort of institutional people who've also had to navigate this thing we're talking about. I mean, thinking about Hawaii Five O, sometimes you'll turn on The Good Doctor, which I'm sure your development of that show could be its own series, but that's another conversation. <laughs> but but those characters who also who were parts of institutions who have to talk about who they are versus the mission of the institution. I mean, that's in some way, because what you do as a creative person is a mission for you as well. So it's, I feel like a lot of times you're embodying these things, like you said, that you're experiencing, you bring them to the characters. For sure. In any institution, any industry, any career that you want to take, it's about 
the goals that you set out for yourself vis-a-vis the rules that the institution wants to set out for you and the path that they want you to take versus the path that you want to take. How you navigate that defines success or failure. Well, how early on did you realize that this is your way in? Using that part of the of yourself and these characters, how early on in your career did you establish that for yourself? You know, that's a really good question because it was something that I realized really early on, only because as an actor, your face defines the kinds of roles that you can play. Your physical presentation defines it. And so when I said, oh, I want to be one of the, the guys who were in the Aliens sequel, like they were like, well, I don't know if they want an Asian person there. And so to be told that right away, you can't help but be faced with it. Uh, that's actually a real life uh, situation that happened. What's that? Uh, well, when I was first starting as an actor, I, I was a big fan of the original Alien and still am. And it was the time that the sequel was being made. And uh, I was with a tiny little agent at the time. And in retrospect, I knew I had no shot at it, regardless of race or anything else. Just where I was in my career would not allow me to actually have a real shot at a role in that movie, a significant role in that movie. But, you know, my agent, my tiny little agent said, well, I don't think they're going to go your way. I don't think they're going to have an Asian in that in that movie. And I was like, oh, and that was really one of the first times I thought, well, what I look like is going to prevent me from getting a role that I would want to play. And so that's when, you know, it became apparent to me that I would have to consider this in everything that I did and every choice that I made and every opportunity I fought for. It's so interesting, too, because I know you've got coming up in the fall, you're going to be working with David Henry Wong on uh, Yellowface. And... Are you going to be DHH in the play? I am. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be DHH. And I just was talking to DHH this morning. Uh, it's an honor to play him. It's an honor to be a part of any one of his plays. And uh, I'm so excited for this fall. Thanks for mentioning it. My pleasure. By the way, the, the DHH we're talking about is going to be played by my guest, Daniel Day Kim. Uh, he's starring in any number of things. Right now, he, we, we'll be able to see him in Avatar The Last Airbender. This is Treatment, which you're going to see here at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But that play, I mean, as long as we're talking about presenting one way and having to deal with the way you're seen, I mean, when you saw that play for the first time, probably like 15 years ago, you must go, oh, how does he know me? <laughs> That's it. And that's one thing about David that I, I can't wait to, to highlight in this show is that he was an activist way before diversity was a buzzword. You know, uh, that whole episode with the Miss Saigon controversy it was one where he was at the forefront. He was leading a charge and there weren't many people behind him. He said this controversy was about a non-actor of color playing a, a role that was a descriptor we don't even use <laughs> Yeah, anymore. that's right. Well, I mean, to those uh, to the, the listeners who don't know uh, the story, it's basically a, the Miss Saigon controversy was where a British actor was playing the role of a Vietnamese man using tape over his eyes, and they wanted to bring that that character over or that actor over to Broadway, and there was a controversy uh, as to whether he should be able to play it. Our union. Uh, after protests from the Asian American community, agreed that he should not. And then after pressure from the producers, uh, the British producers, they reversed their decision. And this actor was allowed to play that character, that Asian character on Broadway. So it was a real watershed moment in kind of our history as Asian Americans. And it's one that deserves to be highlighted now in the wake of everything that we as a country have gone through over the last few years. In some ways, the story is even more relevant now uh, 
than it was then. And it's a kind of barometer on where we've come, how far we've come in certain regards and how far we haven't come in others. It's so funny too, because I guess I think about that. I remember when that was all happening and there was this, a lot of perplexed sort of takes in the media is why is this, why is he doing this? And but why not? I mean, it just, as a person of color, you realize how outside you are of the world. You kind of think, well, why is this even a conversation to be had? That's right. And what's fascinating about it is that in the play, we have actual quotes from people like Frank Rich and Dick Cavett coming out on the side of the the British producer saying, why shouldn't the white actor be able to play uh, an Asian actor with tape over their eyes? And by extension, then why wouldn't a white actor be able to play an African-American character in blackface? That is the same exact logic. You know, I remember in Hamilton, you know, uh, the line about history and being on the right side of history. And it's this is a great way of examining that history and hopefully seeing how far we've come. The reason I was asking you about institutional, just because we've seen a lot of acts of, of hatred against AAPR people, especially in the wake of the pandemic. And I'm wondering if you're looking back and playing some of those law enforcement officials and characters and, and what your take on those characters would be now, because that stuff's got to hit pretty close to home, as in the same way that Yellowfist does. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We have to examine the ways that we've portrayed certain roles, certain characters, certain people, uh, certain jobs, certain professions. Um, that goes for, you know, our police, that goes for our doctors, you know, because there are institutionalized dynamics that have been prevalent throughout history that we as storytellers and entertainers have to be aware that we have some partial responsibility for, you know, because we either reflect the values of our time or we move them forward or change them in some way. Which are we, you know, which are we, which are we doing right now? And the roles that we play have an effect on how we view those very institutions. I've got to imagine too, because I know that you are responsible for bringing the good doctor to American television, which is originally a Korean drama. And that character, as depicted in the original, is a lot of things I think about with you. It's a character trying to hide or using that outward face of professionalism and attention to detail and maybe not being particularly good with people as a way of hiding a lot of hurt. Yeah, what's interesting is that character cannot hide because he presents in a certain way that the second that you interact with him, you sense that something is different. And so you change the way you interact. In that way, it's similar to race, you know, and that you have preconceived notions about someone based on how they look, you know. And I think that the idea for me uh, that was interesting in The Good Doctor was to take someone who you think cannot achieve and give them the space to achieve, can they achieve? What are the preconceived notions we have about someone living with autism? And how can we change those things within reason and given the reality? What do we have room to allow for and, and accommodate? Because it's, I think, such an interesting and demanding role. I just wonder, were you considering it for yourself to do at some point? Is that one of the reasons you wanted to, to, to bring it to the American television? No, in fact, I, I never considered playing that role. Um, I, uh, I thought that it was better reserved for someone who could embody it a little bit more fully than me. What do you mean? I think it's it's a simple answer, really, that 
there are things that I'm interested in pursuing as an actor and that and others are more interested in pursuing. And I felt like as significant as that character was, I felt like I could better serve the message of the show by being behind the scenes fully. Okay. And, you know, as a producer, it's not important to me to be in front of the camera for all of my projects. Uh, if there's something that I, th a story that I think can be better told without me in front of the camera, I would, I'm more than happy to continue developing that show. In fact, a lot of the, most of the shows that I develop are without me in front of the camera. I guess I only ask that just because it's about a character whose forward face forces people to ask questions about themselves, which is, as we've been talking about here, a lot of the things you want to bring to what you do as an actor and also institutional people who's very, by a person of color being in those institutions, forces us to ask questions about those institutions, mm -hmm. all of which th seem to be things that you, you think about on a pretty constant basis. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. And at the same time, not every story is mine to tell in, in terms of being the face of the story. Uh, I don't mind actually being behind the story and to shape it in other ways. The other thing is, you know, I was working with uh, a showrunner who, you know, had a vision as well, and I wanted to be respectful of that, as well as a network who had a vision, I wanted to be respectful of that. So all of those things factor into the decisions. I just respond to you so quickly as an actor, just because the way you play with tensions and dynamics, and this is the sort of constant question, and you're presenting these characters who often in authority positions are looked upon in two-dimensional ways anyway. Mm -hmm. So there's such a complexity of question that I, I find so often you seem to want us to feel in these people that you're playing. I guess I feel those things a lot of the time. I have a level of self-awareness as both an actor and as a person, and I, and I have a situational awareness. Uh, and I don't know if that was something I was born with or something I developed over time, but it is something that I'm very aware of. There's this concept in the Korean language called nunchi. Nunchi, which is kind of, it literally translates into eye awareness, but it's, it's, about, it's about understanding your surroundings having an awareness of your surroundings and how to operate within them. And I think that's something that I think about a lot, consciously or subconsciously, in every situation. We'll take a break because I'm too busy being dazzled by the glint from my guest's watch. Talking to Daniel Day Kim, he's got a number of projects <laughs> oh, right now. He's also starring in Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix because you got to pay for that watch somehow. It's The Treatment. You can also hear it at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. We're having a little bit of warm water with my guest, Daniel Day Kim. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. One of the things I want to ask you about in doing something like Airbender, it just is what it is <laughs> in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But there's also surface tensions, too, that deal with a lot of things we're talking about here. It's about caste. It's, it's about where you live and also in this way about spiritual responsibility. Leave it to you, Elvis. I mean, because you're right, it is what it is on a lot of levels. But, you know, if you scratch the surface, at least for me personally, there are a lot of things that are worth exploring in this character. One, I just love the opportunity to play an unabashed villain. You know, someone who gives zero f about what people think about him. He's got his mission, he's got his goals, and he's going to get them. And he takes pleasure in it. That's right. He takes pleasure in it. And that, to me, is very liberating, you know, given what we've been talking about. And I've longed to play liberated characters because 
of the characters I have played before. I want to see fully realized versions of this character that I've been that I've played several times that has been that is that has been locked up and the conflict has been internal. And so this was an opportunity to do that. I also thought it was a really good chance for me to take a look at being a father myself because I have kids. I know what it's like to cast a shadow over my children and what it means to have expectations for them and hopes for them and what that does to them, you know, and how they can succeed or what their prospects for their own success are given a father who has expectations and hopes and dreams. I would say demands more than expectations. Yeah, that, that character. <laughs> Like you're being politic about it. You make them sound. We sit around the table and just talk. No, no. <laughs> That's true. Not, I, don't want to, I don't want to give too much away here, but he wants what he wants in every aspect of his existence, which does seem kind of freeing to me. Yeah. No. And then that's it. Like, and in a weird way, you know, it's a reflection of our politics right now. There are certain people in in our world right now who want what they want, who have demands, everyone else be damned, they're going to get it. You're either on the train or you're off the train and it's not stopping for you. So everything is political, right, Elvis? No, I didn't realize that. That was the clunk you heard with the scales falling from my eyes. But you're talking about being liberated. And I think there's so many times you... Often in animation, I think in Riding the Lost Dragon, where he is such a free character, there's something about the pleasure he takes in just sort of pushing. You're talking about expectations in parenthood. He's constantly, as a father, pushing his daughter, but also letting her know that he respects her choices. But he's going to push her anyway and to not just make the first choice. And that seemed liberating, too, because there's such a purity in that relationship that he seems as much like a familiar as a father. And when you said liberate, I started thinking about roles you've done that have been like that, where I can, I can sort of feel a character breathing in a way that they're fulfilled with everything they do. Yeah, I think Benja was a fully realized human being. Like he was someone who was comfortable in his own skin. He had made his choices and felt like he made the right ones for himself. And that is liberating, you know? The people who are wrestling with those choices, that's also interesting to play as an actor. In fact, maybe at times it's more interesting to play, and, but it's a different set of challenges. And I think Ozai is almost the, <laughs> the diametric opposite to Benja, you know, but also the same. They have made their choices and they're going to live or die by them. And this is interesting to me too, given that you've played so many characters who we can feel wrestling with things or paying attention. These two characters, these two fathers we're talking about are characters who are completely at ease with the choices that they've made. One is aware of the choices that he's made and how his daughter absorbs those choices. And the other is completely blind to what those choices are doing for everybody around him. And somebody who's creating chaos in that way has got to be really fun to play. Yeah, again, liberating. <laughs> because, you know, in my life, I do care a lot about those around me, and especially the people I love, and they influence all the decisions I make. Ozai is not hindered by any of that. <laughs> <laughs> there's something in the way that these characters, because as you were talking about Raya, I, I felt like I could almost feel him moving and breathing, even though he's an animated character. There's a sense of calm, and it's just a very corny way to put it, but there's also a sense of 
I don't want to say calm, but assurance in, in Avatar, where he knows where he wants to be. I just wonder if you want to talk about physicalizing those mm-hmm. those characters, because there is a sort of sense, of sense for us of this is where I live, this is where I'm going to be, and you have to make your decision about how you want to inhabit the world around me. Well, it's about power, I think, about the ownership of power versus the projection of power. Ah, okay. You sure. know, and I think someone like Benja owns his power and doesn't need to prove his power. So he can speak softly. You know, he doesn't need to to do what Ozai does, who's constantly trying to prove himself. The other thing that I think is interesting about Ozai is that he's the second son. He doesn't deserve to be in this position, but it's through his naked ambition that he's thrust himself into this position. And so he's constantly trying to prove his power. I mean, I, th- I think there's almost something, the way you play him, that's kind of Shakespearean, about this need to be at the center of the world. Um, you think about the great sort of historical plays of uh, these characters want to be there whether they, they belong there in the center or not. <laughs> I never thought Avatar would be compared to Shakespeare, but... <laughs> I'm but, not saying Avatar, no, no, I'm but, saying your portrayal. But I will say that that is at the crux of a lot of Shakespearean history. Oh, you sure, know, like yes. ambition, the role of ambition and uh, and power, the need for power. Um, you look at someone like Richard III, it's, it's all about that. Or even Henry V, is he ready for it? And how can he inspire and motivate and, and bring that collection together? So yeah, in, in that sense, it is the same. And there are eternal questions. And again, to bring it to our country and, and our society, We're asking those same questions now. Who can we get behind? Who can we unite behind? Who are our leaders? And what are the qualities we're looking for in our leaders? And these are very relevant questions, especially as we come up on an election. It's the treatment. You've been asking questions. You should know Avatar The Last Airbender is a lot more political and Shakespearean than you may have thought. My guest (laughs) to talk about it is Daniel Day Kim. He's starring in the show on Netflix. You can hear this show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. One of the things that I guess occurs to me, this our first conversation when I met you, gosh, almost 20 years ago is about this, is about how these characters you play define themselves around power. And you just said it a minute ago. So much of what we, and we're talking about it here, about the way these characters that you play define themselves around power and what their wants are and their understanding of that. And, and a lot of that comes, any number of people of color will tell you because we're so often asking ourselves questions about power and the seats of power anyway. That seems to be a really interesting thing and a, kind of a through line in, your, in the work. It is. And it's a through line that I continue to wonder about because when you think about power and who traditionally has it, and then you think about who has the proximity to power, you take someone like me who presents as I do. If I were growing up in Korea, I would have so much access to that power because of my appearance. But because I look the way I do in America, it's funny that the same appearance actually separates me from power. And so as it relates to my career, if I wanted to be a leading man, and people say that, oh yeah, you, sh- you present as a leading man. You should be doing romantic comedies, romantic dramas. The fact that I have never done any of those things, to me, tells me a little something about power and acceptance. And so I see myself in relation to where the power is, where the relationships to power are. And I feel like one of the reasons I'm so happy and grateful for the progress that we've made as a a society is that now the obstacles to power are kind of 
moving away and becoming easier to overcome for people of color. I don't even want to make it about race. It's about our non-traditional heroes. Someone who's different from the square-jawed, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed conception of who a hero, or what a hero can be. And so heroes can come in all shapes and sizes. That's one of the, the, the themes of The Good Doctor. And I think it's also one of the themes of Raya. It's also one of the themes of Avatar, frankly. So, exactly. Uh, and so this is, this is what I, I continue to question and fight against. Well, for Avatar, because I haven't been deep enough about Avatar yet, <laughs> there is a kind of a pursuit of understanding that too, and to understand that the quest for power shouldn't be the be-all, end-all. I mean, and, and the many iterations of Avatar you've been a part of, clearly you've seen that. Yeah, I think that's right. And so, and when one has power, how is it wielded? That's the other question that I think is so interesting to me. Like, benevolence, when you have power versus the thing that makes someone turn into a dictator. What is the switch that defines one as opposed to the other, which turns one into the other? Because we've all seen leaders who started as benevolent leaders and transformed. Sure. So that's a fascinating dynamic to me. So as we talk about you know, being more inclusive as a country, what is it that we will bring to the table once we're, we're at that table? We always say we, all, we want a seat at the table. We want a seat at the table. What happens when we have the seat at the table? How are we going to use that opportunity to create something better as opposed to perpetuate negative older cycles? Part of this for me is just giving people such as yourself access to all kinds of roles. And when I see you do comedy, as you did not so long ago with somebody who just won the Emmy and all kinds of awards for beef. Well-deserved. And, and, but also, there is a big part of that was sort of making fun of the fact that people of color are often absented from these kinds of roles. You even played a character like that in, in, in working with Ali. And, and that must have been kind of thrilling, too, because that must have been liberating the part you got to play in that movie with her. Yeah, no, it's one of the main reasons uh, I wanted to do the film. Like, it wasn't a big role, but I wanted to be a part of something that said all the things that you just mentioned, that represented all the things that you just mentioned. There were no relegation to stereotype. These were just people. And it wasn't that we were look overlooking their race, that we were actually, their race was enhancing the story. And I think that's the place where we want to be. It's the same thing with Joyride, when I did Joyride. What those ladies did, I had such respect for and, and admired so much that just to do a small part was, to me, a, a joy. And Avatar is the same thing, all Asian cast, when historically it wasn't. And so <sighs> there were statements about that that were being made with this production. And that's a, a big reason I wanted to be a part of it. But, you know, between these, these comedies you're talking about, you did there... Sorry to bring this up, but you are a square-jawed, good-looking kind of a guy getting to play these kind of roles that play on that and then ask you to sort of consider that. That must be fun to do as well, right? It absolutely is because so many of the roles that you've you know, highlighted during our talk has been a particular kind of guy. And I would long to do more comedy. I long to do more romantic comedy. I would love to be that, that lead. You know, I don't feel like... The things that I'm equipped to do have been represented on screen yet fully. So I feel like there's a long way to go for me. Is that stuff you're developing for yourself? Yeah, some of it. And, uh, you know, some of it I'm hopeful that others might see me that way. Um, but every actor in this industry gets typecast to one degree or another. And so we all have to fight to show what we can do. We have to prove it. Well, my guest who's been proving his worth and his mettle and his 
wide range of talent on, for a number of years is Daniel Day Kim. His newest role is in a much deeper than we think Avatar The Last <laughs> Airbender on Netflix. I can't thank you for doing this, Daniel. Thank you. Wow, this flew by. Thank you, Elvis. Lost Survivor. That is, Survivor from the series Lost. Director, producer, and actor Daniel Day Kim. He's returned to series with Avatar The Last Airbender for Netflix. Conversations about series and films, stage, and other cultural points on the curve. They've been charted at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treatment. Points on the horizon ahead. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. I hope you didn't read the book Leave the World Behind if you were in a vulnerable place. Uh, the person who's recreated the kind of the atmosphere, though, of that book is the person who adapted it for the screen. It's now on Netflix. That would be Sam Esmail, who wrote and directed. It's always good to have him do the show again. And Sam, let me ask you, when did you first read the book? It was the early days of the pandemic, you know, like the days of wiping down every Amazon box that came to your house, like before we knew anything. And and actually, funny enough, I was in an Airbnb when I first got <laughs> oh the book. God. Yeah, I had rented a house for my family to just just to hang out with over the weekend because, you know, we were all kind of cooped up in our in our own homes. And uh, and I read this book. You know me, I'm not like one to easily get scared. So I just got excited as I was reading it. I I, I just thought Ramon was touching on something really timely and and almost it was he was like kind of touching a nerve about what was going on in the world. And, you know, the fact that he had not written this uh, during the pandemic and that it was so prescient <laughs> uh, just, you know, months later was pretty crazy. Um, and this idea, this theme of losing one's common humanity when you're faced with a crisis was, I just thought it just really spoke to me. I mean, there's so much of what you do that's about sort of really taking your time and, and letting people think they know a world before you pull off the rug out from under them. And just seeing you bring these, these, these affinities that you have to this material. I mean, th at some point did you say, did he write this for me to adapt? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen our interviews, but we're we're almost siblings in a weird way. <laughs> we do just have we just have a, a very spiritual connection, especially just as writers. Uh, I think we just think alike. When I was adapting the book, a lot of the dialogue just felt like dialogue. Either I was jealous that I didn't come up with it, or just dialogue <laughs> that I think I would have written just you know if I didn't have the source material there, but. The sort of resemblance and style was it was uncanny. And what you're talking about, this sense of dread, but it's very, very slow. It's almost like a train wreck in slow motion. And and I, you know, obviously that's a sort of style I deployed a lot in Mr. Robot and in Homecoming. 
and Ramon, I think, in this book, and you know what I wanted to capture in the film as well, he just takes it to a much slower extent. Actually, the way I would describe it is it's a dream. It starts off as a dream that just slowly turns into a nightmare. But there's also this thing I think you guys have in common, too, which is questions about comfort and how sort of deadening, how much of a really a drug comfort can be and and the withdrawal from that which is this kind of interesting, you talked about spiritual connection and this is something that both of you do. I mean, his books have been, all of his books have been some way about that. And certainly that's something you deal with too when things are taken away from people that they're used to having. Uh, it's almost like this detoxing effect and, and, and it's almost in stages like that. Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's what's so great about the threat in this book, you know, in this story is that we don't really know what the monster is. But we know that our sort of reliance on tech feeds that uncertainty. And so when that's being used against us, it then becomes inward. It becomes a very much an interior story about these people trying to sort of um, work their way through this world now without without their sort of crutches, I I guess I should say, um, with the phones or the TV. And then they kind of realize how useless they are without that. And that, to me, is the sort of interesting dynamic that Ramon was able to kind of capitalize on. And it becomes a kind of a parallel of, okay, so, so something's going on in the world. But what's really fascinating, it's what's going on with these four characters and how stripping away these five things that you know we've all accustomed to, how that becomes this sort of slippery slope into a nightmare and i what what i find fascinating about that is sort of it kind of points the finger at us and it kind of indicts us and our complicity in this and that makes the story sort of uniquely modern in a way i guess at this point we should sort of i should ask you for those people who don't have netflix or haven't read a book uh the book i mean to say to give us a brief description of what the film is about you actually have been talking about it but you can kind of this apocalyptic nightmare, but you can describe a little more specifically what the film's about. The setup is that his family uh, wants to get away for the weekend. And so they rent uh, an Airbnb out in Long Island and they get a knock on the door late one night from two strangers who claim to be the owners of the home. And also there's a mysterious blackout happening in the city. So it kind of is like a, home invasion horror movie setup that then turns into this sort of disaster film form later on. There's so much of this that makes me think that it's you using these these keys that you have to, to unlock things. I mean, getting an actor and with whom you now have a, a long-time professional collaboration, Julia Roberts, who we often think of in comedy, and those expressive eyes and getting her to play against that kind of thing and and not using those expressive eyes for empathy, but in fact, something else entirely. I mean, there's so much about this. Again, casting Julia Robertson, so getting her to come along, I should say, is really an interesting sort of fulcrum because we always look to her as being the, the object of empathy and, the, and offering sympathy. And she's not that person here. No, she's not. And that's exactly the reason why I, I felt like I, I needed a cast, Julia. I mean, she's, you know, I, when I read the book and, and saw who Amanda was, 
I needed an actor that was going to be skilled enough to sort of channel the humanity of someone this flawed. That's going to require skill. And so to me, Julia, in my opinion, is the top of the top when, you, when you're talking about actors working today in Hollywood. Uh, she's one of the best out there. And the other thing that she has is everything you were just you know saying, she has this sort of undeniable charisma and warmth. And I felt if anyone was going to find a way to humanize this very prickly person, it was going to take somebody with Julia's powers to do it. And also just having her play against Typer because the setup is sort of inch by inch. We get a chance to see her discomfort and her last line before the, the opening credits is an enormous laugh line that plays against all these things that we think we know about, about <sighs> Julia Roberts or these things that we have seen. And I mean, she must have gotten an enormous amount of pleasure of, of seeing that script. You know, the thing about it is that I, I've gotten asked the question a lot about why would Julia want to play this? And, you know, why would you send it to her? Did you really expect her to say yes? And the answer is that Julia, she's a phenomenal actor. And what she wants is a challenge. And even though she wouldn't be friends with Amanda, that doesn't mean that, that Amanda as a person should be tossed away. That's the challenge is finding your way into this person and finding a way to make them believable, to make them real, but to make them empathetic, to give the audience a way to access someone who they, they vehemently might disagree with. That's the thing that Julia always strives for is a, is a challenge like that. And she's always up for it. You know, I was obviously aware of taking this notion of America's sweetheart, flipping it on its ear. Like I, I knew what I was doing in that opening <laughs> sequence. Um, but it's also a way to just sort of tell the audience up front, I'm going to, you know, this isn't your typical Julia Roberts film. And this isn't your typical thriller. And I'm going to disarm the audience and tell them, let's, let's forget about all your sort of past thoughts and reservations about this genre and Julia and let's let's just buckle up and go on a ride uh, on a different ride on a unique ride on a ride unique to this to this story but it's also too that in that last line that she has before the opening credits it's where to remind us oh yeah she's a comedic actor and she can make that kind of stuff play it, absolutely and by the way there's a lot of comedy in in the book and 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 you know and what i was trying to pull into the movie that i knew only a julia roberts and again she's just she, you know, like I would say, she's the Michael Jordan of actors. She has different powers. And Amanda required all of these sort of different gears to play with. And Julia was able to access all of that at any given time. It's the treatment. Uh, Julia Roberts is the Michael Jordan of actors. I guess that makes our guest Sam Esmail the Phil Jackson of directors. He's written and directed the, the new film for Netflix, Leave the World Behind. You can also hear the, the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But in your working with her, you've used her in ways that both play off of our idea and ideal of her and throw her into something different. This, this seems to be part of the, the working relationship you two guys have. You know, I found out that she was interested in working with me on Homecoming because she was she was a fan of the podcast. And, and then I found out she was a fan of my show. Um, I was flabbergasted. I had no idea <laughs> really? she would want to work with me. Well, I mean, look at her work. It, it tends to be on the lighter side. And I love all of her movies. I wish 
I was, um, <laughs> I, w- I had a different outlook on life that I could direct my best friend's wedding, which is one of my favorite <laughs> comedies of all time. Um, I just, I just worry that if it were me trying to do it, it'd probably go down a darker road. But I had never seen Julia really uh, in her work, as, aside from a couple of thrillers back in the 90s. You know, I just I felt like that was sort of her lane. So when she wanted to work with me and and, and then when when I found out she was a, a fan of Mr. Robot and then and then I zoomed with her, I got on the Zoom and we started talking. It just clicked that for me that the Julia's been there and done that. Not to say that she won't do it again. I mean, she just did uh, with George Clooney on Ticket of Paradise. But, you know, she wants a challenge. She wants to kind of expand her range and, and go go into uncomfortable territories and she knew that that i mean i guess that was me <laughs> i guess i'm the uncomfortable territory you know like that was that helped i was i was lucky enough to help her facilitate that because my characters don't tend to be a straight line of likability and I, I don't think they ever will be because i i i kind of de- more delve into the gray and honestly veering on the unlikable especially in the case of this movie and i think she enjoys the challenge of that and 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 all the sort of collaboration and work that it takes to pull something like that off i think that's just exciting for both of us well it's it's fun too how much you you, you played around with this persona that she has and and and, and at no point do you walk away from the the fact that she can bring laughs out of the the most awkward situations and that awkwardness is is a part of 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 this material too, isn't it? That just that that social awkwardness, even in the family. Oh yeah, there are um, moments in the film where they can be just as human as a conversation with her daughter, who's trying to wake her up to turn on the TV. Her having to explain reruns to her, which are not played as like you're in a broad comedy, but it's all played as very kind of human and real and innocent but then there are moments like the dance sequence where she just lets herself loose and gets silly with it and and you know i just want to also say julie is actually a great dancer that was her dancing (laughs) and rehearsal is dancing in that scene that's me that's me wanting it to feel as as dorky and as uh awkward as possible um so i i want to i want to make sure i protect their their reputations as dancers but to tell a a person who's good at something okay now do this poorly because you know she's amanda in that scene and it's still really funny but she's not playing it for laughs at all she in fact she if you watch that dance sequence they're both taking this seriously they want to put on the moves and their moves aren't great their moves are kind (laughs) of dorky and and that's the whole point and um, and it's really funny, but they're t- completely committed to it. You know, again, that, those are just the two ranges of Julia. She can lean into the comedy or lean out and still have it funny. And and you know, that's just the, the magic trick she's able to pull off. But there's this thing that you've done so often, and you play, you do it here, where you're playing with what archetypes and 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 pop culture knowledge, and just that thing you're talking about with Mahershala. You met Mahershala Ali, who's also in the film along with with Ethan Hawke. I mean, you give him a moment where he's going to investigate and there's a, a big silent sequence and he's moving very confidently. You need to shoot him from below as if he's this imposing heroic figure who's going to save things. And then something else entirely different happens in that. Or the way you introduce Kevin Bacon, who 
he could be the character from Tremors 30 years later living in a different place. <laughs> I mean, there's so much of this kind of stuff you do playing with, with expectation and pop culture knowledge that's really fun about the film. Look, the fact that they even got Kevin Bacon and Ethan Hawke in the same movie, which it blows my mind that they had never done a movie together before. And I, then I find out later, of course, I realize I, I kind of agree, but that most people thought that they were the same person, which is why you never saw them in the movie together. And I guess our movie is going to dispel all that. But yeah, I don't know if that's a conscious thing, Elvis. I just know that I grew up with all of this in my head. You know, I was obsessed with pop culture as a kid, being raised in a Muslim household. My experience of American culture was all through movies and TV shows. And so that was something I obsessed about. And clearly that's sort of part of what I enjoy about storytelling is to include all of that in it and to have this trifecta, Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke and, and Kevin Bacon in the film and to play off my perceptions of them is great. It's just fun, especially in a genre like this. I think it's so unexpected in, in such a fun way. Well, clearly there's probably a lot more to talk about, but at this point we could just tell you to go see the film and thank our guest Sam Esmail for talking to us. His new film from Netflix as writer-director's adaptation of Leave the World Behind. Always great talking to you, Sam. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alice. Leave the World Behind. The latest from writer-director and returning guest Sam S. Mayo. It's now on Netflix. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. We now know him from Lawman Bass Reeves, but in Ava DuVernay's 2014 film, Selma, David Oyelowo played Dr. Martin Luther King, and DuVernay's most recent project wrestled another fact-based phenomenon to the screen and dispelled his doubts. He's here with the treat. Hi, everyone. It's David Oyelowo, and this is The Treat. The treat that I've had recently is watching Ava DuVernay's film Origin, based on Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. I remember Ava sending me the book and, and me reading it and, and knowing that she wanted to make it into a film. And I did Selma with, with Ava a few years ago. I know her to be a transcendent filmmaker, but I have to admit, I really doubted that this is something that was makeable as a film. But I know her and she was determined and she forged ahead. She sent me a, a script 
and she had cracked it. I could tell she had cracked it, but still, you know, what is this going to be as a movie? And I saw the film recently, and and I, I have to say, as a black person, I try to make my work be about the contextualization of the black experience, but for her to take this notion of race and develop that notion and that conversation beyond race and take it into caste and to show it as something that is manufactured, something that is imposed upon us for the sake of control as opposed to it being a fact of birth and how that has been used over time, over history, in politics, globally, and how it sort of demonstrates and illustrates why we are where we are right now. It's a masterwork. I, I truly believe that to be the case. And it is something that once you watch it, you just can't stop thinking about it because everywhere you look and turn is an extension, a contextualization of what that film is about. And that is very rare. To adapt a book for cinema is always a tricky task. And that's when it is something that lends itself to great characters, great storytelling. This doesn't do that. This is kind of an intellectual exercise around a very politicized part of our lives. So out of the gate, you're like, ah, this, this is divisive. This is something that is controversial, off-putting. And the writer is also it's their process of trying to explain something that is pretty inexplicable without a book that dense to take you through that. So passing all of that out and, and being able to pare it away enough for me to tether myself to a protagonist and feel like I've been told a story, that's a really tough needle to thread. Actor David Oyelowo, star of Lawmen, Bass Reeves, with The Treat, Ava DuVernay's film, Origin. Director Sofia Coppola was also taken with a book converted into a movie. Her treat at kcrw.com slash the treat. Surprises that took the worlds of creators of all types by storm, those working in music, movies, style, and books, and showed them a new view in the process. It's The Treat. The show is produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist, with help from Laura Kandarajan. And to better days, everyone, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. Treatment.